Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. If you're new to the Barbell Medicine Podcast series, welcome. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. Happy to have you. This week is episode 141. We're talking with Dr. Gabrielle Fandaro. We talk about gut health, pretty much everything related to gut health, including what is gut health, its impact on health and performance, gut testing, etc. We also talk about artificial sweeteners and health fiber and fiber recommendations, probiotics, and we wrap up with women in the strength conditioning field. Uh, before we get into this week's podcast, also a quick announcement. We have a new product available over on the barbellmedicine.com website. It is the pain and rehab question and answer virtual seminar from January of 2021. We recorded all of it, did some light editing and formatted it, and it is available for purchase. So if you've ever wanted to go to the pain and rehab uh, seminar, but couldn't quite make it, it's available. So you can uh, download it and uh, go through it at your own speed. And that includes everything from the live lectures uh, that were recorded to the question and answer session. Uh, it's available over on our website. I put that in the link in the description below. And then finally, our whey protein is back in stock. It's available uh, on our website and also on Amazon. Now, without any further ado, let's get into this week's podcast with Dr. Gabrielle Fondaro. <laughs> All right. So if you were in an elevator, you had, you know, 60 seconds to introduce yourself. How would, how would you do it? Probably really awkwardly. <laughs> I, I try to figure out how can I explain what it is that I do to this person and say things like health coach and, and nutrition coach without them thinking that I'm like selling Herbalife. You, um, you, don't, you don't just say that you're a fitness influencer. No, I oh God. <laughs> or I, yeah. Or gut health expert. I actually never use that term. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I guess I would say that um, I am an ex-academic turned Instagram science communicator and uh, coach, uh, educator, and mentor. I love that. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's, yeah. They'd be like, okay, so now tell me what you really do. No. Yeah. Um, so we have Dr. Fondero here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast, uh, and she comes with lots of street cred, street in this case being the academic world. Uh, can you give people your academic background just so you can flex a little bit and also assert dominance? That's, that's what we do here on the podcast. <laughs> Are you going to like roll over onto your back and show me your belly after this? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so my bachelor's is in exercise, sport, and health ed. I had uh, initial um, aspirations about uh, owning and operating a gym. And in my junior year of undergrad, I realized, wow, all the legality stuff is super boring. I don't really like that. I don't think I want to do this anymore. And so um, around that same time, I was tutoring uh, in my, for my, tutoring my peers in anatomy and physiology. And I really fell in love with skeletal muscle phys and biochem and metabolism, sliding filament theory. And so I decided that I wanted to be a professor instead. And so at that point, I um, decided that I needed to go on to earn my doctorate. The program that I went into in Virginia Tech didn't require a master's. So that's fortunate in some ways and that I got to kind of save a couple years. Um, but I ended up tacking them on at the end. So <laughs> I went to Virginia Tech um, in the Department of Human Nutrition, Foods and Exercise. And I was, I started off actually studying um, the effects of high fat feeding on skeletal muscle hypertrophy. And there were some serendipitous accidents that would uh, benefit me later on, but that's how I switched um, gears to look into the gut microbiome and probiotic supplementation and how that might affect skeletal muscle metabolism. So that ended up being the focus of my dissertation. 
Um, and that took five years because I did a two year teaching fellowship okay. and then went on to teach exercise, sport and health, uh, or exercise science rather, um, uh, for four years as an assistant professor and focused mostly on sport, and nutrition, uh, anatomy and phys and intro to exercise science. And I did a lot of uh, mentoring and advising of the honor students there. And in my fourth year, I was then recruited by Renaissance Periodization and uh, was able to uh, scrape by doing both for a year. And then I realized I was going to have to make a decision between, you know, committing to academia, going up for promotion and whatnot, or going the entrepreneurial route. And I chose the latter. So I resigned and um, went to coaching full time, started my own business. And that's now what I do full time. So I am a solo um, ex academic nutrition coach. Um, awkward elevator speech. Yeah. It's a really tall building. We just it's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> a really tall building. That we just went up. Well, no, I mean that's a similar thing. You know, people I, I'm sure will invariably reduce that down to say, "Oh, you're just you're a trainer," and you're like, "Right." Uh, not exactly, but people say the same thing to me. And I'm like, well, I'm actually a physician, although I do this full-time online kind of science communicator, honest broker of information. That's the goal, kind of promoting public health and yeah. knowledge, you know, education of professionals, stuff like that. But uh, yeah, and at the end of the day, people then say, so you're just a trainer. I'm like, yeah, it's fine, whatever. Yeah, Whatever you people, want to call me. Right, right. Yeah. People say, oh, you, so you tell people what to eat. And I'm like, well, not really. I help them decide what they want to eat. And they're like, well, what's the point of you then? Yeah. It's like, well, that is a great question. I <laughs> I still have questions about that. Um, and then it's not just the academic background, but you've also done um, quite a bit with respect to actual competition. I know you've done powerlifting. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can give people your powerlifting resume. And then have you done other uh, barbell sports or other like, like fitness kind of comp- competitively? Yeah. Like I would say I've just dabbled in a lot of things. I actually was really big into trail running um, when I was in grad school. I lived in the Appalachian Mountains in southwestern Virginia, and it was just, you know, 15 minutes from a trail. And so I got into um, trail running and a little bit of mountain biking. And then I really switched gears. When I moved down to Georgia, I started training um, at an MMA gym. And so I was doing a lot of jujitsu. And um, my strength coach at the time said, you've really got a solid muscle base. Like, have you ever considered physique sports? And I was like, not really. So I did, you know, one physique competition just to see what it's like to, you know, give yourself an eating disorder over the course of six months. And um, (laughs) then, uh, you know, the... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm borrowing a little bit from Eric Helms humor, but, sure. um, yeah. you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really, it's risky in that way. And, um, and then I went, I, I transitioned to powerlifting as a way to, um, I think start the process of rehabilitating my relationship with food. Although mm-hmm. it's a little bit rocky when you do that in a weight class sport. Um, but I would say it was a catalyst that helped me, um, you know, accept, uh, weight to regain and, and start to find what was a functional weight and a functional amount of food to eat. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I competed um, in uh, several powerlifting competitions. I would say I was reasonably um, successful and it was a lot of fun. And um, these days I just pick up heavy stuff and put it down in the comfort of my home gym. And yeah. you know, I can't show off in front of anyone anymore. Right. Yeah. Well, the, the new crop of lifters, they're so impressive. And it's just like, mm. we're, there's, we're selecting for people with 
higher either strength potentials or athletic bases or something. I don't, mm-hmm. I can't, yeah, I'm not sure. I just remember, you know, in 2014 and 15, I was substantially more competitive than I think, you know, <laughs> like squatting 600 back then in the, you know, 198 or 205 class was something. And now yeah. it's like, yeah, you got to do that for five and then, you know, squat 700. <laughs> and it's like, well, can't relate. That's not in my, it's not, not for me, but, um, uh, yeah, certainly a, a, uh, an extensive background in practical application of uh, these things that you have a uh, academic resume, and so that's why she's on the podcast. In addition, <laughs> we met we met in London and uh, was very impressed with her presentation. So finally, we finagled her, convinced her to get on the on the podcast. Now, I know that you probably love when people you know refer to you as the gut health expert. You are the <laughs> Yeah, particularly in this space, because if you if you spend enough time, if for the listeners, if you guys spend enough time on the on social media or YouTube or whatever, uh, there are a lot of people talking about gut health. But then when you actually look at like, all right, well, what's their training in this stuff? You know, invariably it's zero. You know, and then mm-hmm. and, and so if you were looking for somebody who's got a PhD and has actually done some research on this, you end up Dr. Fundaro's homepage. That's that, <laughs> ideally that's that's where you go. So as much as uh, you probably love being pigeonholed as the gut health expert, uh, I want to ask you about this because we we get questions on this all the time, and uh, yeah, I think it'll be useful for our, for our audience. So let's start out with just some very basic definition stuff, so we get, we're all on the same page. So mm-hmm. what is the gut, and what does gut health mean? What how would you define both of those things? Mm. Uh, you know, I'm glad that I have over the last couple of years develop something that is maybe a more useful definition to this than gut health doesn't actually mean anything, but still <laughs> gut health doesn't actually mean anything. <laughs> sure. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, but yeah, I've been asked uh, enough times that I thought it would be helpful to uh, acknowledge what I think people are referring to when they say the words gut health. Mm-hmm. And um, I've come up with, Oh, I guess it's a fun little like, uh, I don't know, acronym, like it's the, it's the three D's of gut health. And so I think when people are saying that word, they're probably referring to, um, the diversity, the, uh, presence or lack of disease and the digestion that's going on either in the gastrointestinal tract or within the gut microbiome housed in the gastrointestinal tract. So when we're talking about the gut or the GI tract, generally speaking, we're talking about the small and large intestine, although really it includes everything from mouth to anus. It's just that most people are not as excited about like the oral microbiome or the gastric microbiome. Um, Those don't seem like the cause of or solution to all of life's problems, like uh, the, the microbiome that we find in the small and large intestine. And microbiome means the, uh, or refers to the group of microbes. So we have bacteria, um, archaea, fungi, um, bacteriophages, which are viruses that infect bacteria, and um, all of their genetic material. So they outnumber our genetic material by a magnitude of, you know, about a hundred times. So they have a greater functional capacity really than we do. And we can think of them as a a sort of ecosystem that uh, is comprised of those organisms and then the landscape of our gastrointestinal tract. So when we look at the structures of our GI tract, we have many uh, in the small intestine, we have lots of folds to enhance the surface area. So there's lots of little like crypts and things and like little hiding places 
The large intestine is relatively flat, but it is covered by two layers of mucus. So what ends up happening when we move um, either from the lumen closer to the cells of the intestine, or we go longitudinally from stomach to anus, is that we see um, the development of these sort of micro environments. So there's changes in pH, oxygen availability, nutrient availability, um, exposure to that mucus layer, and that gives rise to uh, different populations of microbes, depending on where we're sampling within the gut. So when we talk about gut health, we're first thinking about uh, one of the Ds as diversity. So what are the uh, numbers? What are the numbers of species, the different types of organisms that we have, and then their relative abundances? So hopefully we have a relative abundance that um, is represented by generally more of the potentially beneficial or neutral organisms and relatively fewer of the potential pathogens. And we also want to see that there's a lot of uh, diversity in the genes present. So there's a lot of functionality there. And even if we were to lose a group of microbes, that another group could step in and take their place. So there's enough functional redundancy there that we're not like, oh, we take an antibiotic and now everything's ruined forever, you know, wiped out. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, then I think people are also thinking about the presence or absence of a disease. So we could have um, an organic disease that affects the actual tissues there or a functional disease that's just the function, the tissues look normal. So an organic disease would, disease would be something like ulcerative colitis and a functional disease would be something like irritable bowel syndrome. And then people are also probably thinking about digestion. So are they having comfortable bowel movements? Are they having a tolerable amount of gas? Um, you know, and are they having their bowel movements fairly regularly? So gut health is a really nebulous term. And because of that, it can be used to mean pretty much anything that people want. So it's often a marketing term. But I think that when we are applying it as an umbrella term that covers these three areas, we can make it a little bit more useful and say that like these things are uh, related to each other, but we don't have cause effect relationships yet. Right. Yeah. So when we're thinking about the diversity or lack thereof and its connection to certain clinical outcomes, whether that be anything from like, uh, uh, you know, heart disease or diabetes or uh, excess adiposity or obesity. Yeah. We're trying to make that causal link. I say we, the research community is trying to figure out like, what is the relationship? But so far we're at this correlational stage. Uh, we're working on it though. Well, again, not we, but people. <laughs> Academics, yes. So um, right now, what if you were trying to explain to somebody who has a, an interest in this stuff, so either a fitness professional or health professional, the connection mm-hmm. between, you know, gut health, the three mm-hmm. D's of gut health and actual like health outcomes, um, what would you, how would you kind of lay that out? You, mm. Yeah, it's, it's, I know there's a Pandora's box. You're like, okay, well, here's the laundry list of things that are connected. Uh, but like, what do you think has the strongest evidence as far as like gut health actually affecting health in, in this case? Mm. Well, probably the closest relationship in terms of proximity would be the gut microbiome and gastrointestinal disease. Again, we don't have that causal relationship, so we don't know which comes first. Is it the disease or is it the change in the profile of the microbiome? Uh, But what we have been able to suss out is this concept of what we call dysbiosis. So dysbiosis isn't inherently bad. It just means different. 
it's different compared to the healthy controls, but there are different forms of dysbiosis. So we can think of dysbiosis like saying bad weather or inclement weather, <laughs> you know, is it like a tornado or is it a rainstorm? Uh, or maybe it's just a normal part. Like we go, you know, thinking about the rainforest, you know, there's tons of precipitation. People might think like, ugh, that sounds gross. I hate rain. But it's the normal <laughs> climate for that environment. So another way of looking at dysbiosis is that it is that individual's healthiest or most adaptive microbiome possible in the context of whatever that person has going on. So mm -hmm. dysbiosis is not necessarily unhealthy or bad, but it is different from the, the control population. And in individuals who have a gastrointestinal disease, um, such as uh, 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 ulcerative colitis or colorectal cancer, we're starting to see patterns in the form of either uh, le a lower abundances of what we would expect to see with beneficial microbes or higher abundances than what we would expect to see of pathogenic microbes. So what's probably going on there is there's a, a cyclical relationship. So perhaps, you know, there is a predisposition that the person has, a genetic predisposition. There are some lifestyle factors that interact with their genes that initiate a disease process that, in, that influences the microbiome in some way. And then perhaps the microbiome then uh, influences the disease. And perhaps there's like a cyclical progression of that disease. But that's just one theory. Um, so we, because of the complexity of the ecosystem of the microbiome and the complexity of these diseases that we don't really under, fully understand the etiology, we're not yet able to say, oh, this is the change that initiates this whole cascade. Um, but that's probably one where we're, we're really starting to see um, the closest um, relationships. And second to that, I would say sort of the, the, um, the, tri-directional relationship between uh, diet and physical activity habits and the development of metabolic disease and the diversity of the microbiome in that individuals who have uh, low dietary diversity, a low number of microbe accessible carbohydrates, they're usually eating sort of a high fat, highly um, refined diet that seems to be more associated with the development of things like type 2 diabetes, metabolic dysregulation, obesity, and that's also associated with lower functional diversity in the gut. We don't always see a loss of taxonomic diversity of who's there, but we do tend to see lower numbers of genes or a lower diversity of genes. And that's probably the direction that the, that the um, area of research is going to be moving is looking not just at the taxonomic diversity, but more at the functional diversity to get a sense of like what is actually going on. And that's more reasonable now because uh, the technology that we need to do that used to be super, super expensive and we had really only one way of doing it. And now thanks to people who know more about the research methods than I do, um, you know, they're starting to refine that process and make it more affordable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you can actually test what is the, you know, the amount of genetic diversity in your the, those microenvironments in the gut microbiome and compare mm -hmm. it to controls, healthy controls or people without a specific disease. And you're like, hmm, that's different and interesting. Let's yeah. research this further. Yeah. Um, so no, no poop pills yet for uh, all of these different diseases, uh, except for C. diff. That was, right. that actually started in residency when I, when I was going through it. Um, it was interesting. It's like, so C. diff, uh, for those listeners at home, we were not in the medical field is like this infectious uh, disease of the uh, uh, intestine, basically as a 
sequelae, a common sequelae in many cases to taking strong antibiotics, particularly clindamycin tends to be the mm-hmm. biggest offender. Um, and so basically this antibiotic knocks out a substantial amount of your gut bacteria and you end up with this raging gut infection. And then you have to take more antibiotics to get rid of it and then hope and pray that <laughs> that bacteria doesn't come back and you wipe it all out and you can restore your normal flora. And mm-hmm. so what was happening is people were on these very, very strong antibiotics. Again, if you even have a cursory sort of knowledge of uh, medical science, vancomycin is like, that's oh. our big gun. That's our cannon. Mm-hmm. And so people were on <laughs> IV vancomycin and oral vancomycin together to really like attack this, this uh, pathogenic bacteria. Uh, and then what would happen is people would get off these antibiotics and then the infection would come right back. And so what they started testing was an actual fecal transplant, effectively mm-hmm. a, a poop pill, as it's commonly <laughs> referred to, uh, where people would ingest this pill that had like all this different uh, bacteria to restore the gut flora. And uh, lo and behold, it worked. So mm-hmm. we'll see if that's the way the research goes for other more common diseases, whether it be reducing the risk of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, obesity, whatever. But yeah, it does seem like I agree that's that's the way the research settings, at least from my knowledge point. And I, you know, obviously I'm not as into this as you are. So we'll, we'll see. Well, maybe we'll do another podcast in a few years after some stuff has been, has, <laughs> has come up. But uh, one interesting thing is I, I remember reading this article uh, this might've been, I mean, the article itself is from the early nineties. So this has been around for a while and I only stumbled across it maybe 10 years ago mm-hmm. is about the gut as an athletic organ. I think that's the actual title of the paper. Mm-hmm. The idea like that certain aspects of the gut and gut health influence performance outcomes. Mm-hmm. And obviously with your not only personal interest in human performance, but also like that's what you did a lot of research in. What uh, what sort of connection do we see between gut health or aspects of the gut and human performance? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was actually just a few years ago that um, Estaki et al. Uh, was able to um, really kind of quantify the influence uh, or the relationship between cardiovascular fitness and microbial diversity. And that um, cardiovascular fitness assessed by VO2 max um, uh, explained about 20% of the variability in, in um, individual um, microbial you know, levels of diversity. And it's so funny because actually I met him um, later last year um, in the, the very last microbiome conference that I attended before oh, everything nice. got really locked down with COVID and whatnot. And um, where I, and so I met this, uh, I'm at the conference. It was, it was in La Jolla. It was so gorgeous. And I'm sitting down in the back of the auditorium, you know, next to, to this young ish guy. And, and we're just like chatting about something. And then I, I, I like noticed his name tag and I was like, Oh, that, looks really familiar, you know, <laughs> and I must've read this article like 20 times. Then when I realized it was him, I had such like a, oh my gosh, you know, fan moment of like, can I have your autograph? Here's <laughs> one of them, you know? So it was so interesting to, you know, meet someone and maybe that's how, how people, I feel like that's how people have like, you know, reacted when they've met me in public. And I'm like, oh, that's so weird. I'm just a normal person. So hopefully I didn't like totally freak him out, but um, it's just, it was, it was just a really cool moment. So um, yeah, that was one of the first, uh, I think more like practical pieces of information that the in, that that the research um, uh, you know uh, area had gathered on that, but there's quite a lot of other data that support a relationship between microbial diversity 
um, specifically the abundance of butyrate producers. So these are mm -hmm. microbes that have a high fermentative capacity and they're producing this one specific short chain fatty acid um, and cardiovascular fitness or just volume of cardiovascular activity. So there was a, a study done on um, cyclists and, you know, comparing the elite cyclists versus the non-elite cycl cyclists, they didn't really see much of a difference in this group called Prevotella, which are um, carbohydrate fermenters, but they saw that there was a difference based on just the training volume. So the more hours they put on the bike, then the, the higher the abundance of this group of bacteria. Uh, so that is one sort of interesting finding, and they've really seen this in a variety of different populations. They've looked at um, uh, gen pop, just people who are recreationally active, you know, meeting the World Health Organization's recommendations for exercise, all the way up to elite marathon runners. And they're starting now to kind of identify some um, uniquely abundant microbes that we really don't see uh, expressed in more sedentary populations. So recently, uh, Valinella was one group, I believe that that is, I want to say that that's like a genus, I can't remember, but um, that's what I'm thinking it is. Uh, but anyway, this microbe was able to convert lactate to propionate. And they um, took some uh, valinella and, you know, transplanted that into the mice and saw how that would influence them. They also gave them propionate enemas and saw how that would influence their, their <laughs> um, exercise capacity. And so, um, you know, lo and behold, the mice had greater uh, endurance exercise performance. So um, things like that or other microbes that, um, like I want to say, I think B. fragilis might be one that's able to um, convert uh, substrates to, to glucose. So uh, the, the take-home message there seems to be that, you know, there could be a role in energy harvesting, that some of these microbes are able to take uh, the, the dietary fibers or um, byproducts of intense exercise and convert them into things that are more useful to us, like short-chain fatty acids that we can actually mm -hmm. you know, use as, for energy or, um, you know, uh, you know, propionate, um, which is also a short-chain fatty acid, but, you know, not, not via fibers. So um, that is, that, that's kind of where the, the data is at the moment. Um, we don't again have a causative link to say like, oh, you know, if you eat this certain thing, then your performance will be, uh, better. But recently they've started to look more into, uh, resistance train athletes as well. And there was a really interesting study that came out just last year, uh, it was sort of a secondary, uh, portion because they had done some observational work previously and found that uh, dietary, that uh, microbial diversity was lower in individuals who were fit and active, but were having really, you know, diets that were really high in fat or really high in protein, perhaps at the expense of carbohydrates. And in this case, they found that bodybuilders who were uh, ingesting an adequate amount of fiber exhibited diversity that was no different from sedentary controls. Whereas the bodybuilders that did have adequate fiber, they had what we would sort of expect to see, you know, increased microbial diversity compared to the controls. Um, but there's very little data on resistance trained athletes at the moment. It's mostly in endurance athletes. Yeah. Yeah. That was kind of my uh, armchair gut health <laughs> <laughs> take. Well, because I mean, it, just with the energy availability thing, you know, if you were looking at like what is one of the prime determinants of like endurance performance, you would mm -hmm. say, all right, energy availability. And so that's why, for example, uh, ingesting carbohydrates during a prolonged effort, you know, can improve performance and mm -hmm. reduce your rating of exertion and stuff like that. Uh, so yeah, if you, it makes sense if you have some bacteria that will encourage or enhance or otherwise improve your 
energy availability because they're just better at making either carbohydrates or short chain fatty acids. Like that's all, that's all good. So is it an adaptive sort of thing where if you exercise, that's what happens is sort of an adaptive process, or is it like associated with a bunch of other healthy behaviors that you're probably engaged with, you know, mm, shoulder shrug emoji, but like, you know, <laughs> it's interesting nonetheless. So mm-hmm. I'll be waiting for WADA to ban, start banning, like, you know, <laughs> The probiotics, probiotics, <laughs> poop, yeah, whatever. Like you're like, oh, you can't take this particular strain because like it's uh, you know unfair advantage. Oh yeah, so. wasn't there was like a there was like a South Park episode? People sent so many people sent me screenshots from this where it was like one of the characters was trying to get they were going to get like a fecal transplant from Tom Brady or something. Yeah, like right, right. He was banned, you know, like fecal transplants from elite athletes. <laughs> That's I feel like yeah. Well, you know, elite athletes are super interesting. Like anytime like a new substance comes out, like you know, it's only been tested in mice or rats, but shown to like, it improves your lean body mass and like, you know, endurance or whatever and decreases body fat. They're like, yeah, I want it. You're like, we don't even know that this works in humans. Like, yeah, I don't care. I still want it. Experiment on me. I'm the guinea pig. (laughs) So it wouldn't surprise me if people were listening to this podcast and they're like, you know, I know a really elite athlete. I'm wondering (laughs) if I can like sample their, but you have to have uh, a stomach for that. And uh, the pun intended. So dad jokes, dad jokes are. (laughs) Please no DIY fecal transplants. Yeah. uh, Yeah. yeah. That's that's risky. (laughs) Yes. Can confirm. Um, A few, a few other kind of hot topics here, just because uh, this comes up all the time, particularly Mm -hmm. when it comes to either health outcomes or, you know, some Mm -hmm. subjective symptoms of like bloating or, uh, gas production, et cetera. People are always asking about artificial sweeteners and gut health. What is the effect of artificial sweeteners on, on health and particularly gut, gut health? Do you have like a hot take for the listeners at home as far as how you kind of approach this problem? Oh yeah. There have actually been a couple recent systematic reviews that have come out in the past, I would say like three years that have shed some really useful light on this topic, indicating that, you know, although we might see some robust effects in a cell culture model or in rodent models that receive doses that would be far beyond the plausibility of human ingestion, but when we actually look at human data, that there are minimal to no effects on the microbiome itself in terms of like taxonomic differences. Um, And the changes that do occur could be due to a number of other factors because it's an ecosystem. It's going to adapt to changes in in nutrient availability, but Mm -hmm. in terms of gut hormones uh, or, you know, gastrointestinal disease that they are benign substances that, Mm -hmm. um, you know, pass through mostly lost in the feces or if it's something that's like aspartame, like a dipeptide, then it could be, you know, it can be broken down just like any other dipeptide would be, you know, two amino acids stuck together. Um, and for the most part, you know, the microbes really aren't interested in those compounds because there's not much that they can do with them. Right. So they, you know, pass by and in kind of the same way, you know, fats really aren't acted upon by microbes either. Yeah. They're swiping left on artificial sweeteners, not interested. That's, that's, yeah. <laughs> the the, the thing is that people will then, after being presented this data from like a me- mechanistic standpoint, sort of like, mm-hmm. look, it doesn't look like they do much with respect to the internal milieu of the gut. They're mm-hmm. like, yeah, well, look at this paper. It says, you know, intake of artificially sweetened beverages is associated with diabetes or mm-hmm. obesity. And it's like, well, now we're talking about dietary behaviors, mm-hmm. you know, like because the individual who's likely to take in more, you know, artificially sweetened beverages may have other dietary patterns that are associated with their total energy balance, for example, or their, the total quality of their diet, which you gotta, you have to like separate 
the wheat from the chaff there and kind of figure mm-hmm. out like, well, what's causing what? And so, yeah, based on present data, I, I would, I would have people rewind about 45 seconds to when you were talking about the, the current, the current data on artificial sweeteners in the gut. It doesn't look like there's a plausible biological, uh, you know, mechanism for artificial sweeteners to really cause, you know, directly, um, any sort of particular mm-hmm. disease or, you know, nefarious clinical outcome, but rather it may be associated with other behaviors. You know, so someone's got a high fat, low fiber, low quality diet, and they're drinking or consuming a lot of artificially sweetened foods or beverages. No surprise that may be associated with certain, you know, things you don't want. But if, uh, on the other hand, if you have somebody who was previously consuming a bunch of sugar sweetened beverages and they switch to, you know, art, you know, diet drinks, that would be a win. So it just depends on context. And I think, we need to be responsible with how we're sharing. Not we, again, yeah. but like <laughs> people with with big audiences need to be responsible with how they're sharing and interpreting this stuff because mm-hmm. that's where a lot of this confusion comes from. So people are like, I don't even know if it's safe to drink a Diet Coke. And I'm like, well, no, not Diet Coke, but Coke Zero is fine. And then <laughs> <laughs> If we're going by taste, clearly we have a preference. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's just, you know, because then people will say, well, the sugar, the one with the real sugar is, is healthier and, mm. and artificial sweeteners cause cancer. And we're like... Oh, big sigh. How do we? Yeah. How oh do we man, find this? yeah. It's a challenge because it's like there's there's so much. Uh, there are so many other. There's a, that that is one belief within sort of a belief system. Mm-hmm. You know that it that is sort of um, relying on like a, a naturalistic fallacies and some chemophobia and whatnot. And yeah, um, you know, it's all. I I was recently reading and writing about the concept of healthism. And that is also a multifaceted um, sort of belief system or, or set of morals. But um, gut health fits in really nicely with that because some of the uh, um, characteristics of healthism would be sort of a, a fear of chemicals, a fear of sort of invisible intruders, invaders, you know, things like fears about vaccines and whatnot. Um, mm-hmm. So when people hear things like bad gut health, they think, oh, my gosh, like what's in there that I don't know about? And then right. you know, people capitalize on that like oh here's a problem you didn't know you had i'll sell you a solution yeah exactly yeah uh, somebody i shared a it was a meme it was like dihydrogen oxide is killing us mm-hmm. and people were like oh i know totally i found it's like that's water bro yes it's yeah actually just water so <laughs> everything's a chemical as it turns out like please return <laughs> to chem 100 like we need some remediation um the second thing that, again, is probably very pertinent to gut health and, and just talking about dietary patterns uh, is going to be fiber intake. Right. So we had a fiber podcast. We kind of extolled all the benefits of fiber and, and really broke that down. But like uh, biggest sort of recommendations you give to people based on fiber intake, do you break it down like, oh, it's got to be soluble versus insoluble? Or you're just telling people to hit a certain amount of fiber or how do you how do you kind of uh, square that circle? Well, I think there's two ways to go about it. We definitely, we have like the practical recommendations of 25 grams a day for females, 38 grams a day for males. Mm. Um, how useful is that to a person who like, you know, just wants to eat more vegetables or something and right. wants to like get their fiber intake up who may not even know how much they're eating right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, microbes really prefer fermentable fibers, which are mostly soluble. And we know that something is soluble or viscous because if we put it in water, it becomes sort of like jellified. Mm-hmm. And if something is added to water and it doesn't change at all, then it's more of an insoluble fiber. 
flavors. So things that are, um, you know, we can think about like vegetable peels and fruit peels. You put them in a glass of water a day later, you come back, they're going to look exactly the same. But if you were to put oatmeal in a glass of water and you come back like an hour later, it's going to be more viscous. So it'll mm -hmm. be higher in soluble fiber. But my general recommendation is to get a wide variety of fiber. So eating plants at every meal is a super good way to start. And it doesn't necessarily have to be vegetables at every meal, but plants are grains, legumes, fruits, veggies. So go to town, find what you like, because that's going to be most sustainable. And mm -hmm. don't, you know, worry too much if you are not hitting the number of like, you know, 30 different plants per week. Uh, it's really cool to have oh, that number. It's a neat piece of data, but it's from one piece of literature. And we, again, don't have a cause effect relationship. And if you're eating zero plants right now, then like start with a couple. Expect that if you're increasing your fiber intake that you may experience a little bit of gas and bloating and it may take about two to three weeks for things to stabilize. You wouldn't want to go from like zero to 25 grams a day. Generally you want to increase by about like three grams per week up to sort of the ideal range. Yep. I love it. She's a big fiber shill. I expect that the, the fiber checks are, they're cashing for you. <laughs> that has been, no, that has really been like, people have said that to me, but not kidding. They've said that yeah. to me as, you know, like a, that's a, a dig, like, you know, oh, yeah. you're, a, you're a strong advocate of fiber. And I'm like, yeah. All right, all right, Citrusel. Where's my check? Yeah, where's my check? <laughs> yeah, big psyllium husk coming in with the yeah. the, the, <laughs> the funding. Um, and then the last kind of thing that we get a lot of questions on, and you're near the expert here. Should everybody be taking probiotics? You know, you can you can find them everywhere. Right. Uh, should does everybody need to take a probiotic? Um, can I put a shameless plug for an article that I collaborated? Yeah, do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, I worked with Precision Nutrition to write a super extensive and super referenced article on applications of probiotics. Um, so that's one place that I would send people. And then there's also a really helpful reference called, um, it's, it's the US Probiotic Guide and it's by AE ProBio. Mm -hmm. um, it's a group of practitioners and researchers that go through kind of like um, pour through the recent literature on probiotic applications and um, compile that in this like cool compendium. You can sort it by malady and then also sort it by um, quality of evidence. So that's very useful. Um, but the, the, the big takeaway message is that no, not everyone needs to be taking a probiotic. We don't have, probiotics are not applied like a multivitamin where, you know, you take one and it kind of like, you know, you absorb, oh, 50% of it. And then, you know, you're, you've met like a lot of your nutrient needs for the day. The effects of probiotics, because they are um, live organisms and they exert unique functions, really are strain specific. Mm -hmm. And the applications that are supported by the best quality of evidence right now are really limited to things like um, diarrhea due to um, antibiotics or traveling, so like an infectious diarrhea, or um, some of the symptoms of IBS and inflammatory bowel disease. And outside of that, there's really not that super, uh, there's not a lot that's super compelling, um, in part because the data is just so uh, variable because that we don't have like a standardized way of delivering the probiotics in terms of the dosage, the frequency, um, you know, the strain, there's many different strains of probiotics out there. So we just have to wait for that data to get to a place where we can actually pool it, um, in a way that that's functional for us. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I, I agree 110%. I mean, the, the thing as far as 
my current knowledge base on probiotics, there are a handful of like very specific gut related pathologies that seem to respond well to probiotics. I say, well, I mean, they have some reliable improvement in clinical outcomes, but Mm -hmm. if you're just a healthy person walking around and you're wondering, should you pick up, you know, a probiotic at Walgreens or your other, your health food store? Probably not. Um, you know, there are, there's probably a non-zero risk in taking, you know, (laughs) a (laughs) relatively unregulated, relatively poorly tested, uh, sort of, uh, dietary supplement, Mm-hmm. for no real benefit. And so in that case, if we assume it's a non-zero risk and we don't have any evidence of clear benefit, we're kind of, it's kind of like, well, why, why yeah. are you doing this? Yeah. Plus and the cost. If, right. Yeah. Exactly. I was going to say, even if there's no risk and no benefit, like why, why are you spending the, you know, $30 a month, like buy vegetables or buy yourself a yeah. massage or sure, whatever yeah. you want, you know, like yeah. <laughs> there's so many yeah. other or ways nap. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, just you don't, don't spend on- it at all. Then, yeah. Just don't you know? save it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, go all Dave Ramsey on folks. Just save it. <laughs> uh, the last part of this kind of gut health thing I want to talk about is gut testing. Now mm. there are a bunch of commercial, uh, you know, testing services. Mm. They can mail mm. it to your house. Right. I, I don't. Are people pooping in a box? Like I don't. You know, or like what's the <laughs> like? How are they doing? Because it seems like like that would be the best way to test things. That's mm-hmm. like as far as least invasive. Uh, but I feel like that would also be a limiter. Like not a lot of people would sign up for that. You know, just like. Yeah, here's how you're going to collect your sample and send it back. You get <laughs> oh man, I have some bad news for you because that is pretty much exactly what they do. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So if you <laughs> if you want to poop in a box and send it to somebody, like don't send it to these testing companies. Maybe send it to your enemy. <laughs> like that would be funny. But <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Oh man. Um, well, I think for for some of those, they actually have you kind of like take a swab. Um, maybe from toilet paper, so for like the home gut, um, oh, okay. you know, uh, the home stool analysis tests. But in in the real research world, we send people with a contraption that is sort of like an inlay for your uh, goes under your toilet seat, Got and it. then you have what is effectively a Cool Whip container that goes in the center, and you sit and you poop into the Cool Whip container, and you put a lid on it, and you put it on ice, and then um, someone like me, an unfortunate graduate student, goes and picks that up from the lab and then transports it across campus to, to put it in our minus 80 freezer. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Nice. That's why you get paid the big bucks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh man. Um, so the, it, what, what's unfortunate about these comprehensive stool analysis tests is they are taking um, research methods that are legitimate, but they are applying their own arbitra- arbitrary and non-evidence-based reference ranges mm-hmm. to um, create some mythical, some science fiction sort of practical applications. So when we, when you send your your stool sample away, um, in most cases they are using either a, a DNA-based test. So they're they're measuring. You can think of this sort of like barcodes. So we go to a grocery store um, and they're scanning everything and like imagine that something doesn't have a label on it. Well, they can't scan it, right? And that's the same thing that happens with our with our stool tests, that we have to have reference genomes. We have to have reference barcodes. So that alone will reduce the resolution of uh, who, we're, who we're able to identify. Now, if we're using a DNA-based method, we can uh, identify the bacteria, the archaea, the fungi. So we can kind of see who all is there, but we can't tell who's alive or dead. And we don't mm-hmm. know about the functionality. We don't know like what genes are actually being used. 
And then if we take something like a 16S RNA method, we can identify bacteria and we can actually identify them fairly specifically all the way down to the species level, sometimes the strain level, uh, but we don't get all any of the other microbes. And again, we don't know what they're doing. <laughs> so what we have to do if we want to really get a good sense of what's going on is something called a whole genome um, uh, 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 metagenomic shotgun sequencing. So we're looking at all of the genetic material there, and then we can actually tell which genes are being expressed or not. Um, we can do that at various levels of depth now. So the one that I was referring to earlier, that's a little less expensive, is called shallow sequencing. So we basically are taking, um, you can think of this like taking a ladle and deep, deep, like dunking it in a thing of soup. If you only skim the top of the soup with a small spoon, you might get like a couple letters and then like a P and you're like, oh, this is like lame soup. It's not a lot going on. If you take a ladle and you go deep into the vat of soup and you stir it around and scoop out a big scoop, then you can really get a better sense of what is going on in that soup. So that's kind of like how this dual analysis works. But in the research world, we don't look at that and say like, oh, yes, this person has the right amount of streptococcus, not too little and not too much, because we don't have that information. But right. when you send it to a company, they come up with their own ranges. They just and made then, it up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, it just blows my mind. And then they're like, oh, well, you're outside of the reference range, so you need this supplement that we sell, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and so that's what's frustrating to me because we don't we don't have the capacity to say like what what we you know what a person should or shouldn't have in terms of like actual numbers um especially considering that you know when we're looking at a fecal sample also it is only representative of really the distal part of the colon not the whole gi tract and um if it's something that's sent you know and is analyzed 24 hours later that's also another uh, reduction in in the integrity of the sample there because uh, we might lose you know some of the organisms which may be not a big deal for using a DNA based test because it doesn't matter if they're alive or dead anyway um, but just keeping in mind like there are a lot of limitations to the technology that's being used and when we then say like oh here's something you can do about it that's really bordering on the edge of science fiction right yeah. No, I, I think that some, I mean, it's, we've said uh, some very similar things as well. But, and, and people were saying, well, but I can get this test and it empowers me. If I feel like I'm mm -hmm. empowered because now I can make changes based on these test results. It's like, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm all for empowering folks. And if that's what, you know, kickstarts your behavioral change, like, cool. Mm -hmm. Except for the the risk is this overinterpretation, like oh my gut is not whole. I have this issue and I need to do this specific thing, which yeah. unless it's like part of these very generalized health promoting behaviors, like get enough exercise, get, you know, eat a, a health promoting dietary pattern, get enough sleep. Like, yeah, but you already knew that beforehand. Right. right. Like, so I always, uh, I, I kind of make the metaphor, like get, doing a gut test and at home gut health test is kind of like getting a random x-ray. Like mm -hmm. you get to kind of see what's there. You see the bone, right. But you got to correlate it clinically. And yeah. so like if you were, for example, looking for a fracture or looking for like some other uh, pathology that shows up on on x-ray, you would need to like, oh, I see this thing. That's what I was looking at. And uh, now I found it and where I didn't. Um, but otherwise, you're just looking at a picture of a bone. And yeah. only very rarely are you going to identify something you didn't know was there, but you're actually concerned about and you have like a clear path forward for like taking care of it. That would be in this case, not to scare anybody, but like a bone cancer. But but yeah. again, in general, uh, yeah, it's just a picture and you're like, I don't know, maybe interesting, but mm -hmm. like otherwise 
they're not cheap also, by the way, these things are not cheap and people are like, they just want to be less bloated. Right. Or they just want to like figure out a diet that they can adhere to. And it's like, none of those things are like going to be discernible or determinable by an at-home gut health test. You'd be better off working with a professional with respect, either like dietitian or another, you know, health coach or something like that Mm -hmm. rather than collecting your poop in a box. But if that's, if that's your thing, I I don't know what to tell you. Like, I don't, we're, (laughs) we're not the same. (laughs) Might be other reasons people want to collect their poop in a box. We don't Correct. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So, um, we had a, had a bunch more topics I wanted to talk to you about, but I also understand our listenership's, uh, sort of, uh, attention span. No offense to anybody listening. It's just like, look, if it goes over an hour, I know where you guys go. Like I see the listener, tre- the trends. So um, a topic I really wanted to bring up with you and a good way to kind of tie this all together. Um, just being a subject matter expert in this field and being a woman, as far as like any unique challenges that you face, the idea is, it, you know, my take is that we get, if we get more women, subject matter experts, then we're going to get more women involved in physical activity and training. And that makes the world a better place mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and makes it, uh, you know, uh, rising tide raises all ships. So any sort of unique challenges that you've like sort of met along the way, mm. being a subject matter expert in this field, either during your education or during, you know, this kind of entrepreneurial sort of split or, or anything that you can, that comes to mind. Yeah. Well, I think in, in the terms of like in being in the, within the niche of gut health, I think um, gut microbiome research, like the actual research side of things, doesn't seem to be heavily gendered in either direction. Mm-hmm. But gut health, uh, actually, you know, I don't know that gut health really is gendered in either direction either. But the challenge is that I seem to be, uh, and part of the reason that I am hesitant about people, you know, saying, calling me a gut health expert is that um, I think that there's a lot of appeal to sort of emotion and anecdotal experience. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that that really differs between male and female practitioners, but a lot of women um, in this space are sort of selling the, the pseudoscience, which is really unfortunate because I, I know of plenty, uh, or I know several uh, female scientists and, and researchers in, the, in this space that would be such a benefit, you know, to, to Instagram and in providing more evidence-based information. Um, but you know, they're like super busy and they just don't have a a huge Instagram presence. Um, so I think, yeah, my challenge is maybe, you know, in finding other, um, female subject matter experts and, but even men, I mean, in, in the realm of, you know, gut, it's fairly limited. And, it, and when I do attend those seminars, it's really hilarious that like these people have really no idea that gut health is a super big thing. You know, they're not on Instagram and whatnot. They're like, oh, you're from, you're from the internet. Cool. Like, oh wait, people are asking about this. People are taking yeah. spore forming probiotics. Like that's a bad idea. And I'm like, well, give me a quote for Instagram. Cause everyone yeah, yeah. wants, you know, everyone wants to do it. Um, but you know, I think it brings to mind a conversation that I, um, observed and took part in on Facebook. And it was about kind of the, the P ratio debate. And, oh uh, yeah, I saw that. You know, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. kind of all that, you know, it's, it happens to be like men having this conversation and, um, and the men having the conversation have like written ad nauseum about this, you know? And so that was the context for, 
um, behind why it was these men having this conversation. And a person had brought up, you know, that there it would be um, interesting to hear, uh, you know, other perspectives from female practitioners. And then there was a lot of back and forth about like, well, why, you know, do we have a female just because it would be great to have a female present? Or do we have, you know, a female who's a, a subject matter expert? Can we think of one? And I said, mm. hey, you know, I've, I've actually have studied the influence of, you know, high fat feeding on skeletal muscle hypertrophy, a sort of uh, parallel to this debate. And it's not a very accessible um, or generalized um, just topic. It's not something that, you know, I think people would just be able to like, oh, let me just chime in with my thoughts. Yeah. I mean, people just- can, but... I'll just riff on it. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, like it's not an area that people can just be like, yeah, let's like freestyle and jam out, you know, if we want to have a conversation about it, fine. But like in this very niche, like very specific application, I was like, I can kind of see why, you know, like these people have this conversation because they wrote about it. Um, but the, the issue that I think is worth discussing is the fact that like, no one can think of a female subject matter expert, not that they don't exist, but you know, whatever factors have come together have quieted their voice or their voices in this industry. And so we can't think of like, oh yeah, you know, when people are thinking about like, you know, fitness, um, professionals and experts and whatnot, you know, they are probably thinking of like mostly a bunch of men and like maybe a couple women. And I've been, you know, the only female presenter on panels most of the time, all, all the time, really almost all yeah. the time. I mean, I would present with, with, um, you know, Dr. Mel Davis from RP, but like, uh, at UEBC, I was one, I think there were 10 presenters and I was the one um, female. Uh, and then in London too, uh, you know, and so, um, and I'm like not the only person who's knowledgeable about the government. <laughs> you know, like I, I'm, so I'm like, thanks guy. Like, this is, this is really nice. I'm honored. Um, you know, but there are definitely other subject matter experts, but you know, there might be other challenges too that, that I don't even face that other women face like having a family, you know, if you have children, mm-hmm. I have no idea. I'm like, I don't have enough time in the day to do everything that I need to do. And I've only got dogs and I have like no, <laughs> no children, no desire to have children. So like, that's a load off my back. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, these, the, the women who are running a business and they have like multiple children and whatnot, like that would clearly reduce your ability to like be present online. You know, we only have so many hours in the day. So I think those are some of maybe the more like unique challenges that I, that I can't speak to because I I really feel like I've been very, like, I haven't been, I haven't faced many challenges. I have to say that I've been kind of like fortuitous, you know, um, in, in the area that I stumbled into with the gut microbiome. And that's happened to be like a really hot topic. And thankfully people want to listen to me ramble. That's super awesome. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I know that other women have faced other challenges and, and so, um, it's a societal thing and it's also, you know, an industry thing. Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, if, we, if you look at the people who are bridging the gap from like actual academia, I mean, and they're publishing stuff, uh, they're actively involved in research and then also on social media, like really kind of cultivating their audience and trying to put mm-hmm. out, be scientific, you know, honest brokers of scientific information, be arbiters of, of science. Mm-hmm. Um, that's in general across both genders, re- relatively few and far between. Right. And, yeah. and then I, I think the, the whole industry skews just again more towards men in a way and so mm-hmm. probably proportionally there's even less women although again there were very few to start with who are doing both but if yeah. you go into like pure academia many fields in uh, particularly health and fitness and medicine mm-hmm. yeah there, there are a lot of women but i think there's probably just less also kind of making that 
that transition. And then on top of that, the societal sort of bend to like, well, this is a guy and they mm-hmm. look like they work out or fit and they're probably given a little bit more leeway just to, you know, to, to build their audience rather than the, the woman who may have to like demonstrate expertise mm-hmm. at a higher level to sort of cultivate the same oh, level yeah. of audience or, or, you know, uh, so yeah, probably a lot of complex things going on, but I, I, I read that Facebook back and forth. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, we don't just want to like include a person, wo- right. woman or man, just, mm-hmm. just because they're popular. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly that would be condescending to the woman just like, yes. yeah, yeah, you're just a woman. We just needed the token woman here. It's like, right. And in yeah. that dis- particular discussion, we're discussing very nuanced aspects of the P ratio, right? Not mm-hmm. we, again, I was not involved in this conversation, yeah. but, um, the idea is like, all right, well, there are likely women researchers who have participated in this and they could have been guests, but they were not actively involved in that conversation from the start. And so like, Mm -hmm. I don't know, seeking that person out, you know, you could have done that, but also is it necessary? Probably not. What we don't need is just, yeah, this person's popular and I know her. So like, let's get her on. It's like, cause again, the other people are kind of discussing like research that they've they're actually participated in and reviewed. And we are not just riffing and having a casual convo, but Mm -hmm. I, there are, look, there are other women subject matter experts. And if you're one of them and you happen to be listening this far into the podcast, like make an Instagram, make a TikTok. Like, I don't know. (laughs) We we need, we need more of you because I, uh, I think it again, also just inspires probably more women to to either take that road or at least, Mm -hmm. you know, do do stuff in this field, and I think that's ultimately how you get more more women training. But I wanted to get your take on this. How do we get more women in the health and fitness space, putting out high quality information, actively cultivating an audience, promoting physical activity, and other healthy changes? How do how do we do that? Mm. So, you know, I've I'm, I've worked with a few coaches in terms of like mentoring, and I think uh, some of the barriers are also societal in that, mm-hmm. you know, and not to say that men don't experience this also, but um, like, as you had alluded to, there is certainly a barrier in terms of women having to prove their, their worth, you know, and, and they, they don't show up and people give them the benefit of the doubt is that you have to mm-hmm. show us that you um, deserve a place here because mm-hmm. you're a woman and kind of like, what do you know? Uh, and, and second would be the, um, the internalized ideal of appearance in the fitness industry mm-hmm. that, you know, I think women have a concern that if they don't look a certain way, they can't create content. They can't mm-hmm. coach. Like, why is someone going to listen to me if I don't have, you know, uh, like svelte arms and a six pack, you know, that, mm-hmm. so we've almost internalized or many of us have internalized that sort of objectification that like, I have to look a certain way or else people won't take me seriously. Um, and so I think if we can begin to dismantle that and improve uh, and increase inclusivity and visibility in the industry so that, you know, for, for both genders, so that it's not just people who have a six pack, it's people in all sorts of bodies and all sorts of levels of ability and, um, uh, you know, different perspectives on, on like gender even, that I think once we start to break down those sort of internalized frameworks and expectations, I think people will probably feel more comfortable putting mm-hmm. themselves out there because it's vulnerable to, to make content, to talk about your experiences, to try and help others. You're opening yourself up for like 
just vitriolic lashback. I mean, we, if anyone has ever seen the Instagram, um, there's there's a period between each of these words, but you look like a man. Oh, God. <laughs> it is li- like, that's the dregs of Instagram, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, when you look at things like that, it's sort of, oh, gosh, no wonder that women aren't posting things. You know, it's no wonder mm-hmm. that, because you put, you know, a woman can put a picture up that is, you know, she's wearing like, you know, a, a, an outfit that shows her body and people have something to say about that. Or, you know, women choose not to do that. I've kind of gone the route of like, my, my, my Instagram's not really like a fitness Instagram. You know, it's a gut health and coaching Instagram. So it's all content, um, you know, and I'm sure people might wonder like, well, you know, why isn't, you know, you'd, you'd get more followers if you put your whatever Sure. You know, I've even had people like, you know, ask for like pictures of my feet for $200. And I'm like, I don't put anything on, I don't put anything out there, you know, it's but, 250, but also <laughs> like, yeah, oh, my goodness, you know, so it can be, um, a really, a, like a dangerous space, you know, for lack of a better term, it can be an sure. unwelcoming space. Sure. And, um, yeah. So I think, you know, if we can, and I think that this is of would be a benefit to everyone that if we can maybe be like more courteous and charitable to each other to say like, hey, you know, I think you're really trying here and we have different perspectives, but like, could we have a conversation about it? And, um, you know, but but I think that's a, it's difficult because there's an anonymity. You know, I'm pretty sure that most of the people on You Look Like a Man would probably not say that to anyone that was in front of them in the gym, mm-hmm. hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. If you look, if you ended up on, you look like a man, like we, we have problems. You need to turn this podcast off. You need to go somewhere and seek help like this. Yeah, I agree. So yeah, that was, you've really kind of, uh, tied everything together with respect to our thoughts on women in the fitness industry. Again, if, uh, hopefully people go back and listen through that. Uh, Dr. Fondaro really enjoyed having you on the Barbell Medicine podcast. Uh, where can people find you and interact with you on the internet? Um, they can find me at vitamin PhD on Instagram, uh, vitamin PhD nutrition, uh, for the website. If they want to get in contact with me, that's the easiest way to do it. And if they're interested in the coaching side of things, um, in terms of actual coach education, it's btgcomprehensivecoaching.com. Love it. We'll put all of that in the description below. And thanks again for joining us on the Barbell Medicine podcast. Thank you. All right, that's a wrap on episode 141. Big thanks to Dr. Gabrielle Fondaro for coming out on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. I've linked to all of her stuff in the show notes and description below. Also linked the U.S. Probiotic Guide, so if you're curious on that, that is linked as well. Uh, Before you go anywhere, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast, and we appreciate your support. And we'll see you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. See you. (laughs) 